nothing you say surprises me anymore. <laughs> you could say that you were in a circus and you used to ride a unicycle and your best friend was a monkey named Chuck. And at this point, I would say, yeah, actually, that tracks. I mean, you're not far off. I did work with Cirque du Soleil and I learned how to unicycle and juggle clubs from a world champion juggler. See, this is what I'm fucking talking about, Mike. <laughs> Hello, welcome to Ten Cent Takes, the podcast where we inherit our parents' problematic purple pants, one issue at a time. My name is Mike Thompson, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, the Bayot of Bedlam, Jessica Frazier. Oh, I like that a lot. And listen, <laughs> I did have laser eye surgery, so I'm pretty much bionic at this point. Yeah, right? Exactly. That's how that works. <laughs> man so also because i was watching a lot of cartoons on pluto tv this week ahead of this episode and there were a lot of advertisements for this i would just like to say happy shen yun season oh god <laughs> oh my gosh what a what a cult what a I, like literally what a cult <laughs> oh my goodness gracious yeah. like yeah if you ever want to hear mike go off on a rant it's uh ask him about shen yun and hear him tell you about how incredibly problematic it is and and all the other associated acts with it yeah yeah i one of my special interests is cults and it's definitely come up on multiple podcasts that i listen to so let's yeah. just say that have you watched the documentary about Mother God? It's on HBO right now or, or Max, whatever. Oh, see, I don't have Max. I don't, hmm. I don't have it. So, no. It it's, <laughs> it's it's surreal. It's like this woman who basically claims to be God and then she builds up this this cult around her and they are making like tons of money selling tinctures that they're making and shipping out and getting people to donate to them. And then she gets really sick with cancer. Oh, and I know about and, this lady. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the whole thing where she's like, I finally, she's like, I think I need to go to the hospital. And her cult is like, oh, no, that's not really you talking. You don't really want to go. And I'm like, oh, it's yeah. <sighs> yeah. Sarah, Sarah and I can watch documentaries about cults. But when it's like kind of like the con artist cult, like that's where it is, as opposed to like a whole lot yeah. of like kind of unspeakable acts against their members and, and that sort of thing. Like that's the Venn diagram for us. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. People can be really problematic. Yeah. Oh, there's another really good one. If you get a chance called the way down, it's about this like evangelical church in Franklin, Tennessee or, oh, or okay. Nashville, Tennessee, one of them. And it's all about how basically equating holiness to weight loss huh it's yikes fascinating so yeah that anyway. doesn't sound triggering at all <laughs> no not at all sarah and i were like <laughs> like i'm sitting there eating like a tub of red vines while i'm watching it it was great <laughs> Ugh, i had to stop listening to one of my horror podcasts because what like the whole premise was like this woman on a weight loss program and i was just like oh, I, I literally can't listen to this yeah so yeah if uh if you ever want to hear us talk about wait specifically for an entire episode go back and listen to our episode about kid cannibal from last year uh, yeah 
Yeah, it's a it's a triggering topic for both of us. But yeah, yeah, it sure is. (laughs) So it takes a long time to and sometimes you don't ever get out of, you know, the things you've been fed from society about what you should look like. So exactly. Well, sorry for the tangent. (laughs) The purpose of this podcast is to celebrate comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We like to look at their coolest, weirdest and silliest moments, as well as examine how they are woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. If you are enjoying the show so far and you want to help us grow, it's always a huge help if you're willing to rate and or review us on Apple Podcasts, as that really helps with discoverability. And this week, we are going to be talking about Phantom 2040, which is Marvel's tie-in comic to the cartoon of the same name, which aired in the mid-90s and featured a near-future update of the pulp hero, The Phantom. We're covering this topic because of the thematic similarities that it has with Defenders of the Earth, which we covered in our last deep dive. Yeah. All right. So before we actually start talking about Phantom 2040, what is one cool thing that you have read or watched lately? So you know that I'm always behind the times on when I see things, for the most part. (laughs) Both of us are a lot of the times. Yes. So I'm just now getting around to watching The Rings of Power, the Lord Mm. of the Rings prequel series that was out like a couple of years ago at this point, I think. I am so bad about keeping up on Lord (laughs) of the Rings stuff. Like the most recent Lord of the Rings thing that I read was an out of office email that I got. <laughs> like, oh no. Yep. Yeah. That was, uh, that was, that was horrifying. Unhinged. That was very unhinged. But I, I don't mean, know what I would have done if I had gotten that. Like it, it almost feels like a, it almost feels like a prank. It almost it, like it was unreal. Yeah. Yeah. I, but anyway, like I am very casually a fan of Lord of the Rings. Like I don't like I've watched the movies. They're fine. I played the video games that came out a couple of years ago, which were fun. They're big, dumb open world action games. Yeah. Like I haven't watched this TV show, so how is it? So I backstory on me, I read The Hobbit when I was in fifth grade. Mm, okay. And so, and then from there, I just like consumed the rest of the Lord of the Rings stuff. And I've mm. read the trilogy as well. I and then I also have read some of the other like exterior works, and I can't remember right. all of the ones that I've read, but you know, through the years I've just kind of consumed a bunch of that material. So I've I've been rewatching some of the movies recently, just going through them, you know, the extended edition, because I'm not a nerd at all. I don't have a Gandalf tattoo on my arm at all. Read, yes, I do. So <laughs> <laughs> so the fact that it took me this long to watch this is kind of like shame on me, but also like, I don't know. I have to wait for the hype to die down before I watch something. It just is kind of a thing. So I'm only a few episodes in and I really like it so far. There's all these like nerdy Easter eggs about the lore and like it gives a ton of the backstory. It's really fun to see how they conceptualize the early hobbits as well. Like they weren't calling them hobbits at first, which was so it was like really cool to see all of that building up. Oh, so like what were they calling them? Ah, gosh. And now I forget. Okay. I know, I'm bad. But they, yeah, they weren't calling themselves hobbits. They were living in the forest and they were camouflaging themselves in the forests instead of being in like 
like kind of an open society. They would like, if anybody went by, like they would just look like they were looking at moss on rocks and da 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 because they would literally have like the whole town open and whatever. They would get word that somebody was coming through and everything would doom, boom, boom, shut down. And it would just look like the forest. Okay. It was really cool to, to see that kind of early way of looking at them. And the costumes are, of course, absolutely superb. So mm-hmm. it's been really nice to get back into some new Tolkien. It's also making me want to read the series again. So we'll see when and if I end up doing that again anytime soon. I don't I don't know. That's a big it's a big ask. Like there must so, have been some Lord of the Rings ask. comic books at some point, right? Like Oh, I feel like there had to have been. There must have been. Yeah. We'll have to take a look into that. Yeah, yeah. You know I'd be into it. Yeah. So what about you, Mike? Yeah, so I was going through our press email from Boom Comics, and I wound up checking out Pine and Merrimack, number one, which just came out this week from Boom. It is an absolute blast. It is written by Kyle Starks and illustrated by Fran Galen. I hope I'm pronouncing the last name right. There was an accent mark in there, and so I'm not sure. This is a mystery starring married couple Linnea and Parker Kent. Linnea became a homicide detective after her sister was abducted and murdered when they were kids, while her husband is a former boxer. The two met when she solved the mystery about who killed his best friend and sparring partner. Spoiler, it was his coach. And now the two work together at their private detective agency where they, you know, they look into the usual stuff like insurance fraud and cheating spouses. But one day they are asked to investigate the disappearance of a girl who looks like the spitting image of Linnea's dead sister. And I don't want to spoil things too much more about the story itself, But I do want to shout out a couple of things. The story itself is absolutely delightful. Starks has this very fun, funny, and sweet narration style. And seeing how Linnea and Parker interact with each other, it's genuinely heartwarming. They talk like how Sarah and I text, which was very funny, and I really liked it. So like, I'm extremely here for their whole relationship. And then Galen's artwork is just stunning. Like, I don't know if there's actually a label for this style, but it's kind of like a pulpy mid-century modern. It was serving a little bit of the art style from like the Incredibles in terms of like how the characters are illustrated, but it feels more like a mashup between Bruce Timm from Batman, the animated series and all that. And then Dan Brereton, who's actually a Bay area native. And he did, he did this really cool painterly pinup style comic called the nocturnals, but the whole book just, it feels like a work of art. Like it's, very clever. I love the way that they depict everything in this very cinematic style. And it's an absolute blast. So I'm going to ask my local shop to pull it for me. Very cool. Yeah. So how do you feel about talking about Phantom 2040? We got to do it. <laughs> Fair. Okay. So... The reason that we are focusing on this property today is because it feels, for lack of a better term, like a spiritual sibling to the Defenders of the Earth. Both Defenders of the Earth and Phantom 2040 are set in near future slash cyberpunk environments and feature updated takes on pulp heroes. In Defenders of the Earth, we had Flash Gordon, Mandrake the Mystic, Lothar, and the Phantom working with their kids to defend the Earth from being the Merciless. Phantom 2040, however introduced us to a different phantom who in this case is a descendant of the character. Most audiences knew, but both of these properties gave us different spins on classic characters. So I am 
curious. You got a crash course on the Phantom last episode. What do you recall about the character? Yeah, the Phantom was one of like 23 in his ancestral line that protected a tribe in Africa called the Bengali, I believe. Uh, Yeah, I've seen him referred to as a couple of different ways. The, yeah. the nation is called Bengala. Bengali, and then I yeah. think... And then I think the people themselves are called the Bengar. Bengar, that's right. I that's think. Right. Yeah. So he's called the ghost who walks. Mm-hmm. And each time one of the predecessors died, he was replaced by his son who had been training since childhood, making it seem mm-hmm. like he had been there for some absurd amount of time. And it was his job to protect this poor, helpless tribe or nation. Yeah. yeah. It. It's an interesting character. I really like the whole idea of a heroic identity being passed down and making it yeah. kind of a, a, a legacy for a family. At the same time, the whole origin for this character is that back during the times of piracy, this kid was the sole survivor of a pirate attack on like a trading ship. And as a result, he is rescued and adopted by a tribe who teach him their secret ways. And then he becomes their champion and fights pirates. Right. And then, as you said, passes, you know, the title on down to his descendants. It's a very fun, pulpy concept. It has issues because (laughs) there's a definite white savior colonialism kind of vibe going on because the Phantom is, as far as I know, he's always white. I, I'm not overtly familiar with the character. I haven't read through all of the strips. So maybe there were some other people who show up throughout time because they do flashbacks and show other Phantoms. Yeah. The main one that we see in the comic strips is Kit Walker. He is identified, I think, as like, I think the 21st Phantom. Mm, okay. But like. I knew I was going to get the numbers wrong. You I were was close. Like, it's like, a it's stupid fine. amount of them. <laughs> no, you're I'm like, it's fine. But I know that they have done flashbacks of earlier Phantoms adventures, too. But I don't know all the yeah. details. It's interesting, though, because apparently originally when they introduced this character and they had the nation of Bengala, it was in South Asia. It was like close to Thailand. Oh, and then interesting. and then at some point early on, they shifted it over to like Africa. And it's I think it's like right around the area of Kenya. Weirdly, there's a whole Wikipedia entry about the fictional history and government and like how everything functions. It's interesting. It's like it's apparently oh. a democratic nation now. Oh, OK, but yeah, we'll we'll talk about this later on. But like a lot of Platinum Age characters, it was written <laughs> without a lot of racial sensitivity. And right. You know, so yeah, but you, I mean, you got the gist. That's great. So the Phantom was going through a resurgence at this point in time. We had had the Defenders of the Earth in the late 80s. And then in the 90s, we had this really interesting kind of revitalization of aged kind of like, you know, pulp era style heroes. So we had the Rocketeer who wasn't actually a pulp character, but he was stylized as one. Dave Stevens had created the character back in the 80s. And he's set in the 1930s era. And then he got a movie in the early 90s. And then immediately after that, we had a a movie of The Shadow, which is, you know, again, the classic crime fighter with Alec Baldwin. And then we also had a movie based on The Phantom come out, I think, about a year after this cartoon aired. So totally forgot about that. And I remembered it only, only when I was looking for it, (laughs) the the Phantom 2040, and I saw it come up and I was like, oh, shit, I forgot about that movie. Yeah, it stars a very young, dreamy Billy Zane. Oh, Billy Zane. So this was like shortly before Billy Zane appeared in Titanic. (laughs) um, 
He is a dreamboat. He apparently spent a year, year and a half training to put on muscle so that he looked like the Phantom. And he was apparently a really big fan of the comic because he got introduced to it on, on another movie set. And like, he worked really hard. Like, I think he worked harder to be the Phantom than they spent making this movie good. And if you go back and watch it, it's, it's not bad. It's actually a very charming movie. There's also a very young Catherine Zeta Jones in it. Like, yeah, it's a, it's fun. It's just, it's a very kind of like time warp of a movie where you're like, Oh, this is really kind of like quaint. And yeah, it's, it's not bad. Also like the shadow I really enjoy. It's not a good movie, but it's fun. The rocketeer I think is one of my actual favorite movies of, of that era. It's, you know, there's something to be said about this this time frame and and the kind of like the sense of, for lack of a better term, kind of like a much more simple adventure story. But yeah, they all three of them bombed though. All three of these movies oh, no. did not do well at the box office. Like The Rocketeer, I think, made back its production budget, but it didn't do great. They were clearly hoping for it to be a much bigger hit, and they put a lot of marketing into it. The Shadow. I don't think even made back its production budget and the Phantom was just, it was unequivocally a box office bomb. Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry, Billy Zane. Nice. Yeah. Try. It's all right. He went on to other things. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I still think he is one of the best movie villains I've ever seen for his appearance in the tales from the crypt demon night movie. Like, yes, I love that movie so much. Like that's one of my favorites. Uh, so Billy Zane, if you want to come on the show, please. Man, we should see if we can get him to come on. Like, I I don't know. That'd be cool. That'd be really cool. All right. We're, we're going to work on this this year. We'll see what we can do. <laughs> I'm just trying to put everything out into the ether. Yeah. You know? I mean, you know, we've gotten some big names, so we'll see. We have. Absolutely. All right. So on top of like this kind of like attempt to make pulp heroes big again in the 90s, we also need to talk about the cyberpunk genre for lack of a better term because that had really started getting popular in the 80s but the 90s is when it feels like the overall genre really surged in terms of representation in both movies and in television we had films like total recall johnny mnemonic and demolition man right around this time and likewise several cartoons were using the cyberpunk setting already we've already talked about how shows like cops and defenders of the earth featured a kind of hopeful vision of the setting but alongside Phantom 2040, the 90s had a number of cartoons that were also using this setting. So we had kids shows like The Bots Master, Sherlock Holmes in the 22nd Century, and The Magician. Plus, there was also like Aeon Flux airing on MTV, which is decidedly not kid-friendly, but people still cited as incredibly influential on the genre. And also, Aeon Flux bears a special connection with the show because Peter Chung who was the creator of Aeon Flux, was the lead character designer for Phantom 2040, which is really actually pretty obvious if you're like familiar with the style, the facial designs, the willowy body types, the really out there fashion. Like, that's all kind of, you know, trademarks of his. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And then Tom Schillinger, who served as an art director on the show, gave an interview with this Australian podcast called X-Band, The Phantom Podcast, apparently the phantom is actually still very popular in Australia. And so this podcast, it's really good. They've got like over 200 episodes just talking about the phantom. And this interview was really fascinating to listen to, but he talked about how they use blade runner and Akira for a lot of their visual like inspiration for the show. 
Yeah, which I mean, like you look at it and you're yeah. like, oh, yeah, I can see all this. Like, yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> and so that leads us to The Phantom 2040, which was a French and American animated TV series that aired from September 18th, 1994 to March 3rd, 1996, with a total of 35 episodes. The show was developed by producer David J. Corbett and executive story editors were Judith and Garfield Reeve Stevens who they themselves are actually very accomplished writers. They wrote a number of books for Star Trek and were also executive story editors and co-producers on Star Trek Enterprise. And they wrote for a bunch of other animated series, including Batman the Animated Series. Nice. They, Yeah, they wrote the series Bible, story edited both seasons of Phantom 2040, and also wrote several episodes, including the two-part pilot. And then on top of that, the show had a pretty stacked voice cast. Regulars included Scott Valentine as... Kit Walker slash the Phantom, Margot Kidder, who is very famous for playing Lois Lane in the original Superman movies, Ron Perlman, Leah Romini, J.D. Hall, Alan Oppenheimer, Richard Lentz, and Jeff Bennett uh, were all regulars. Mark Hamill, Tebby Harry from Blondie, Rob Paulson, who is otherwise known as Yakko from Animaniacs, and Paul Williams, who's like a major musician with songwriting credits, but was also the villain in the delightfully unhinged Phantom of the Paradise movie, they were all recurring yeah. guests. Like, it's wild. I thought I saw Mark Hamill in the credits at one point. And yeah. I was like, that that tracks. Absolutely mm-hmm. that tracks. He's such yeah, a good he, voice actor. He was Dr. Jack, that like kind of that <laughs> makes TV so journalist. Much sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was too quick for me. And I was like, I'm not going back. But Yeah. Yeah. So the gist of the show is that in 2040, the Earth has been devastated by a combination of environmental disasters and something called the resource wars. Countries have apparently dissolved into massive city states where the general populaces are scavenging to survive and whatever's left behind by the super wealthy as they continue to gobble up what few resources the planet still has left while they basically build their own private housing that keeps them free from dealing with the poors. So uh, this is sounding very familiar and yeah. not quite futuristic but very reality-based dystopian it's a little bit like robocop which i've talked about before and i'm like robocop was supposed to be satire boys but here we are yeah here we are there literally are states where they're trying to make it illegal to camp they're trying to make it illegal Mm -hmm. to loiter in certain public places yep it's you know, it's great. They have that. What a time to be alive. Yep. Yep. It's awful. It's awful here. <laughs> I hate it here. Oh, man. The show is set in the city state of Metropia, which used to be New York City. Metropia is the headquarters for Maximum Inc., a mega corporation with its tentacles in just about every industry, but it's also responsible for humans called biots that have basically destroyed the labor market by getting rid of the need for a human workforce in several sectors. Maximum is also illegally producing biots for combat purposes. Basically, they're creating their own army. So Maximum is run by Rebecca Madison, who is leveraging her company's resources to push both the construction of a, I'm going to call it like a cyberpunk fortress neighborhood called Cyberville. Cyberville is going to be a place where the elite can meet. The creme de la creme of society will be able to ride out the oncoming environmental collapse protected by an army of biots while everyone else is just going to fend for themselves. However, the Phantom is no longer just a defender of Bengala or even Africa. There's a vague mention about how Africa unified earlier in the century thanks to the efforts of a previous Phantom, 
And college student Kit Walker Jr. learns about his family's legacy when he turns 18 and takes on the mantle of the 24th Phantom. Kit also discovers that in the tunnels beneath Metropia, there is a new type of jungle growing. Dubbed the Ghost Jungle, the plants here don't need sunlight and actually feed on toxic waste. So aside from fighting evildoers, Kit and his allies are working to preserve the Ghost Jungle and use it to heal the Earth. The Phantom has some updated gear, including a couple of flying vehicles, a costume made out of a bullet-resistant material, optical camouflage for invisibility built into his suit, a supercomputer built into his wristband, and the other wristband has a retractable kind of, it's called a smart rope, like, you know, yeah, whatever. And the meta story for this cartoon is pretty deep and complicated. Each episode keeps adding to the world building. We get new and unique characters who sometimes don't have their backstories unspooled until later episodes, and it makes them infinitely more complicated. It was a show that wasn't afraid to breathe, to like to treat the audience intelligently and not force tons of lore and characters down our throat in like one or two episodes. Yeah. And so case in point, we meet Dr. Jack, who is voiced by Mark Hamill early on, I think in the first episode, he is a TV journalist who is literally a walking embodiment of yellow journalism practices. And he's like, he's like almost grotesque looking. In fact, I'm going to say he just, he is grotesque looking. It's not yeah, even almost. Yeah. And agreed. Agreed. He has like a cybernetic eye that serves as a camera. And then he's got like all these like ports that he plugs wires into like all of his head and neck. It's just, it's a really out there design, but it's cool. And then we learn later on that he's got this kind of tragic backstory and has a surprisingly cool connection to Mr. Cairo, who is a shadowy information broker who ends up eventually becoming another ally of the Phantom. Like, I don't know. Oh. I, I really appreciated that. Yeah. Yeah. And then according to a number of online resources, the show actually had rave reviews. I couldn't find any when I looked for them. But that said, the X-Band Phantom podcast, the co-hosts had watched episodes and were talking about it. And they were actually discussing how the show was actually really faithful to the original comic strip while still updating things in a way that they felt was really cool. So, you know, in an area of the world yeah. where the Phantom is still very popular, this is very well received, apparently. That's great. Yeah. So the folks behind the show were clearly aiming to have this launch a whole lot of merchandise, but we only got some branded stuff like a flashlight and a dark gun. I think I read somewhere about how at one point there was an action figure that was prototyped, but never produced. But when I went back to look for that, I couldn't find the source. So take it with a grain of salt. And then aside from the comic that we're going to talk about, there's also a shockingly decent video game for the Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis. It was a side-scrolling adventure game, kind of like Metroid or Castlevania. But there were like a number of narrative choices that players can make that would affect the game's overall narrative. So you can actually get something like 30 different endings. Like, I love that. You know, I love that shit. That choose I, your own ending shit. I love it. When I was, I don't know, 12 or 13, I think I bought it for like 10 bucks. It was like on sale. And I'm like, yeah, sure. This is a video game that I can afford. And I remember playing it for hours. And it's really like once you get past the difficulty curve, it's actually very fun. And then I remember playing through it. And I'm like, oh, these are different options that I haven't had before in terms of like missions that I have to go on and stuff. And so it was really interesting because I hadn't seen that before. And, you know, these days having like an open-ended game with like, you know, multiple endings and storylines and things like that, that's kind of, you know, par for the course in a lot of cases. Right. They weren't doing this back then. <laughs> like, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, that's why I think it's really cool because I remember generally, I mean, it was just you have one storyline you get through. Sometimes you have different ways of getting there, but there's an eventual yeah. ending. There's a boss you're beating. There's something that like overall, you know, everybody's doing this last thing. Yeah, I think so. I think that it's not bigger and better known. Like it, it's a it's a well-known game within like a certain level of like classic game nerds. Yeah. I think this game would be better known if the property had caught on a bit more than it did. Okay, that's fair. Now, as I said, the cartoon lasted for 35 episodes across two seasons, which was September 1994 through March 1996. The comic, however, only had four issues, and it's cover dated May through August of 1995, which means these issues were actually hitting stores like March through June of that year. I confirmed that with Mike's Amazing World of Comics. So okay. the series ran right at the end of the first season of the cartoon based on the air dates that Wikipedia has listed. Now, before we actually talk about the specific issues, I want to discuss one thing in particular, because this series is noteworthy because Steve Ditko is the artist involved. And right. Ditko is a pretty legendary figure in the comics industry because he co-created Spider-Man and Doctor Strange back in the 60s while he was working at Marvel. But like, it feels really weird to see him working on a licensed book like this. However, it's not the first time he worked on a book that we covered. He also drew the Chuck Norris Karate Commandos comic, which um, yep, he sure did. Yeah. And uh, sure did. yeah, it's funny because one of our friends on Twitter, Dottie, and I were talking at one point and Dottie was like, oh, yeah, Ditko was a hack. <laughs> like he just ah! took, he took jobs like, you know, basically just work for higher jobs so that he could get money. Um, I mean, listen, yeah. it's it's a tough life. I'm never going to begrudge in in this day and age of late stage capitalism oh yeah you cannot begrudge people for like using their talent to make a buck because those are your options at this point no it's just it's one of those things where i was like this is so strange to me because this guy was already a legend because he created some of the biggest characters in the industry yeah he's doing these like shitty tie-in books what what happened and then i found this quote from a new york times article from 2008 titled From Spider-Man to Ayn Rand, that talked about how his star had been on the downslide for a while. By the 70s, he was regarded as a slightly old-fashioned oddball. By the 80s, he was a commercial has-been, picking up wretched work-for-hire gigs. Following the example of Ayn Rand's John Galt, Ditko hacked out money-making work, saving his care for the crab objectivist screeds he published with tiny presses. And boy, did Ditko hack. See examples of his Transformers coloring book and his big boy comic is like hearing Orson Welles sell frozen peas. Ooh. <laughs> like what? What a way to Ooh. describe it. So damn. Yeah, it's it's just it's weird to see a literal comics legend being reduced to fairly ignoble projects like these. But it's also surprising based on what his career had become. So are you ready yeah. to talk about these issues? Oh, woof, woof, woof. Let's talk about them. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> oh, man, we have thoughts on these issues. So issue one is cover dated May of 1995. It was published by Marvel Comics, written by Peter Quinones, penciled by Steve Ditko, inked by Bill Reinhold, colored by Mike Worley, and lettered by Pat Brousseau. Cover art was by Neil Hansen, whose style is very different from Ditko's. I was actually surprised at the difference between the cover and the interior art because yeah. the cover's like the art feels very 90s extreme yeah agreed. but like 
but I was going into these books. I'm like, okay, so this is going to be like kind of weird nineties, like nineties extreme, like very over the top action. And that's not what we got at all. Mm -mm. And we'll talk about that later on, but yeah, this issue is basically a very truncated retelling of the pilot movie, which was actually two full length episodes, but it's so truncated that it feels almost like a different story. We literally open on Rebecca Madison monologuing to her son, Max Jr. and head of security Graft, who is actually one of my favorite character designs for the show. He's basically like a head and shoulders, like attached to a biot body. Like, yeah. He looks like he's wearing a biot evening gown, honestly. Kind of. Yeah. And like, he's actually like a very tragic figure. It's very interesting. Yeah. But anyway, so they are all talking about how Gran, who is an ally of the Phantom, has come to Metropia, which means that the hero himself can't be far behind. And Rebecca also notes that the Phantom murdered her husband. This, this is like so different than what happens in the show, too. And then, yeah, a hundred percent. Garan, meanwhile, is following Kit in a park and loses track of the teen. But then Kit ambushes him and very reasonably asks, like, "Yo, why are you following me?" Garan says. Oh, I was a friend of your father, hands Kit the Phantom's skull ring, and then immediately vanishes and says to meet him at a specific location. Meanwhile, Graf triggers some hypnotic nanobots at Battleworld, which is a VR arcade, and he notes about how they'll get all the attendees to riot and burn down the city. We cut back to Kit, who has found Garan and the ghost jungle at the location he was told to meet him at, and then Garan tells him the origin of the Phantom. Rebecca and Graft watch Dr. Jack's coverage of the riots that they've triggered, again monologuing about their evil plans to get the council to approve Cyberill in exchange for helping stop the riots. And then back at the Phantom's lair, Kit has like immediately adopted his family legacy and goes through a walkthrough of all of his equipment with Garan. After that passive introduction to his gear, they see the news of the riots, and Kit notes that his friends, who we have never met in this comic, like we get a full intro to them very early yeah. on in the cartoon. Yeah. He sees how they are trapped inside the burning battle world. So Kit goes to save them. When the Phantom arrives, Graf sees him on the security feed and it's implied activates like a lethal VR simulation. But the Phantom manages to escape via his suit's invisibility. He then saves his friends and gets them out of the arcade. He's captured on camera by a news drone and gets asked about who he is, to which he replies, I'm the Phantom. And it's broadcast across the web. And Rebecca has a meltdown seeing that. And then the last shot is Kit back at the skull cave reciting the phantom's oath and taking on his family legacy. And I need to note that so much of the pilot episode is omitted that it almost doesn't read like the same story. Like we don't meet Kit's friends. We don't meet his aunt, who is a huge part of the overall storyline. Kit didn't get the ring from Garan in the cartoon. Like instead, there's a whole attack from Maximum's biots on his house, which is actually like it's a great story beat. Like Kit is studying in his room and his aunt is like, yeah. I'm going to turn off like all the sound and everything and the alarms and all that stuff. So you won't be distracted while you study. And then there's this attack yeah. between her and Garan because Garan has come to talk to her. <laughs> and then Kit finds the ring and then a plant leaf that he then goes to his college professor about. And it's very interesting. Like it's like, it's all, you know, kind of like, like I said, it, it, it's letting itself breathe because they have two full length episodes to discuss all this stuff. And right. And just like none of that happens here. There's no subtlety. It's just moving from one thing to another and things that don't fit within that time frame. They just rewrite like. Yeah, it totally felt different. Like reading it. I was like, this didn't happen because I read the comic first and then I watched the show and I was like, wait a second. 
Yeah. And like the whole thing with the riots and all that. So there are riots and yeah. And like, you know, battle world burning down and Kit going to save his friends. But like the conflict with Graf doesn't happen like that. Like he rescues his friends and then they ask who he is and he's about to tell them. But they realize that there's like a news crew following him. And yeah. so he like keeps his identity secret. He yeah. the other one that was like kind of kind of wild to me is that they don't use nanobots. It's like subliminal messaging from the VR games that like these people have been imprinted yeah. with and then they're they're triggered. They're like sleeper agents. And yeah. If they got to yeah. a certain point of the game, yeah. Yeah, if they if they went to like a higher I wasn't sure if it was within the game or if it was within the arcade because they slide between those two descriptors yeah. like where they're like, "Oh, well, if you Kit go to this saying, level." Kit was saying like Oh, like I did. Oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Level. I was I was thinking level within the game. Like, But the thing is, is it's like it's a multi-story arcade, too. You're totally right. You're totally yeah. And right. so it's huh. never really never really fully explained. But like, no, no. But that's the thing. You're like, OK, whatever. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so needless to say, I was not a fan of this comic. Like, I'm sorry. Sorry to spoil no. this. But no. yeah. Don't worry, we only have three more issues. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. Just kidding, yeah. I didn't. How could I? Oh, wait, All it's right. very forgettable. That's how. Oh, God, right. So issue two has a June 1995 cover date. It has the same creative team as issue one. This and other issues appear to be original stories featuring new villains that we never got in the show. And the story begins with Kit killing Garan during training, which turns out to be a nightmare. Meanwhile, Rebecca has hired a mercenary named Alloy, to hunt down the phantom alloys arms can change shape and material. So he often transforms them into types of metal and then will often turn his hands into like different kinds of melee weapons. Alloy ends up kidnapping Garan in order to lure the phantom out. Kit's aunt, who we have not met in the comic before this, but now she's here. No, right. Surprise. (laughs) You have an aunt Heloise that we get like barely any introduction to. Yeah. So she's like a major part of the cartoon. Like she's, like the whole thing is like yeah. Kit lives with her and like yeah. she she was his uncle's sister or no great yeah uh no was she his was dad's his dad's sister was it his dad's sister or his grandfather's sister it was one of the other his I grandfather's can't remember. sister or maybe his like grandfather's yeah you're right she's yeah. a little bit older she's older but the other thing is that she is very aware of the phantom's legacy why she couldn't be the phantom i don't know she seems like a badass she dual wields pistols right. when she's confronted with a buyout army so right anyway yeah, so <laughs> Kit's aunt sees the kidnapping go down. She tells Kit what happened. Kit flies to Garan's rescue using a homing beacon embedded in his mentor's skin to track him down. And he winds up fighting Alloy for the rest of the issue. Basically, Alloy's shape-changing abilities give him an edge that almost lets him take out the hero. But then the Phantom hits Alloy with some sort of... It's something called fractal metal, which then short-circuits his arms and takes him out of commission. Kit then rescues Garan while Rebecca, Max, and Graf beat a hasty retreat. And finally, Garan and Kit reaffirm their commitment to work together and ensure that Kit is trained to be the best phantom he can be. I'm just shaking my head because I don't care. Like, these summaries that I'm giving you are so much more coherent than what actually goes on in these comics. And, oh, God, I can't. (laughs) So... Issue three has a cover date of July 1995. It has the same team as before, but Bill Reinhold also did some penciling alongside Ditko. And this is another original story. It is focused on a group called the Cabal and their quest for revenge after they were vaguely betrayed 
The Cabal's leadership are three old men whose heads are projected from a drone that floats around and lets them shout orders at their underlings. It's actually kind of a cool, weird visual. I'll give it, it this. Like, it's basically yeah. a drone version of Cerberus. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, okay. So the issue opens with them finding the guy that they're gunning for who's in cryogenic storage. And then they're having their minions steal the storage container. Kit, meanwhile, is at college and asks Professor Archer, who is like his basically his mentor in college um, to help him identify a plant from the ghost jungle. The professor just looks at it like he's holding it in his hand. And he goes, Oh, this plant doesn't have chlorophyll, so it doesn't need light, which first of all, like, I don't know how you can tell that without a microscope, but second, right. I, I don't think that's possible because chlorophyll is what gives plants their green color, but mm-hmm. you know, whatever, mm-hmm. like I'm not a biologist, but <laughs> <laughs> so Archer also, without any scientific test, just goes, oh, it drives on toxic waste. And then immediately, instead of freaking out about this like major scientific breakthrough, it's just like, yeah, so where'd you find this? <laughs> it's like, okay. So weird. Later on, Dr. Jack provides some exposition about the Cabal's actions. And it turns out the guy in the cryogenic storage was another crime cabal member named Ias Sheffield. And he may be connected to a missing cryo scientist named Jasro Kirsch. These fucking names. I know. Who disappeared at the same time as the gangster. Both of these men were linked to a case Kit's father was working on before he died or disappeared. Like they keep on talking about how his dad disappeared, but I think he died like in the cartoon. It, that, that was my impression. Yeah. He did um, die in the cartoon. Yeah. That's what I thought. And his man. mom like, had died too. I mean, well, you know, like dead moms. They're a dime a dozen for superheroes. We love a good orphan. Yeah. I watched about. 10 or 12 episodes of the cartoon before this. I didn't get a chance to watch all of it because like I said, there's yeah. 35 episodes, but I was I like, watched like five or dad... six of them. Yeah. Yeah. Like I was like, if unless his dad comes back later on, like his dad no. is dead. He sounds <laughs> dead, dead. Yeah. Okay. So meanwhile, the Kapal's leadership is in their evil lair and they demand a very forgettable goon revive Sheffield. It turns out the Cabal is mad because Sheffield got a hold of something called the cryo serum, which apparently is like, rejuvenating him while he is in his cryogenic sleep and the other leaders were just left to age and die. The goon starts to wake the guy up, but the process automatically stops and won't work with the code they have. So the cabal demands that this guy track down Kirsch's son as he'll obviously have the proper opening sequence, which, okay. Obviously. <laughs> the Phantom and Garan arrive at the college where Kirsch's son, Edwas or Edwis, Edwis? I think that's how you say it, right? I think it's Edwis. I don't know. I don't know, man. Like, these names were weird. Very strange. Edwis works there as a researcher. Only Edwis and his wife are in the process of getting kidnapped. We never learn her name, I don't think. No, she's not allowed to have a name. She's a woman. She literally is just there to be like, oh, they're kidnapping Edwis. And that's like it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then the Cabal's drone manages to get away with Edwis. And when Edwis arrives at the HQ, he says he'll wake Sheffield up, but only if he gets to kill the criminal since the man made him an orphan, which I mean, I can't really begrudge him that I get it. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the phantom finds out where this is going down. He infiltrates the lair, which is actually a defunct winery and then destroys the drone by pouring wine on it, which is actually kind of funny. Yeah. Edwis gets ready to murder Sheffield, but the Phantom stops him and reveals his father is obviously still alive because Sheffield wanted the scientist alive for when he woke up, which like that's a leap of logic, but okay. Yeah. Sheffield wakes up and holds Edwis hostage for a second. 
before the phantom refreezes him. It's like, it kind of reminds me of Futurama and like, you know, where you keep on seeing Fry get frozen. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah. And then the two find and reawaken Edwis's dad off screen. Like it just basically it's like, let's go find your dad. And then the next thing is his dad is recovering in a hospital. Yeah. And then it's very abrupt. When the phantom returns to his lair, he finds Professor Archer waiting for him who has deduced the hero's identity and then vows to help him, which <laughs> like it's very different from how Archer deduces the phantom's identity in the cartoon. And, yeah, and also the whole thing where the phantom is like, Oh, there is this, uh, there is this plant from the ghost jungle that I just wanted to have him look at. He actually brought Archer in the cartoon, the plant leaf, because he's like, I found this with my aunt's stuff along with this ring. Yeah. And, and it's like, it's in the pilot episode. It, yeah, it works so much better in the cartoon, but yeah, it we'll, seriously we'll, does. Like, yeah, it, it's a better introductory for sure. Yeah. All right. And then we get to the final issue, which is issue four, which is my least favorite issue. Uh, yeah. Agreed. This is cover dated August of 1995. Same team as the rest of the series. And like, yeah, I, man, <laughs> shaking my I, head so hard right now. I need a minute because like I was reading this and I felt gross. Yep. So, yep. Like the level of quality control, first of all, is not good throughout the series. And case in point, they don't even get Bengala's name right in the opening panel. They call it Bengal. Ba- that's why I was confused. I think that's why I was confused because it was written so many different ways. Yeah. And so, so that's the thing is like this comic is like, I mean, honestly, like I'm glad that we have this comic to talk about because I think Phantom 2040 is pretty interesting, but like, yeah. <sighs> anyway, so the issue begins with Garan bringing Kit to his village because Garan is apparently from the village that the Phantom is most often associated with. And he wants Kit to meet the Bandar people. But when they land, the village has been demolished. One villager attacks the phantom with a machete because the phantom abandoned the village that he swore to protect. But then the rest yeah. of the village calms the dude down and then they welcome their champion. And it's like really uncomfortable how they start doing that where they're like, oh, like, would you like to marry my daughter? And I'm like, what? Ugh, fuck? Oh, I hated that. I hated yeah. that so much. We'll talk about it in a minute. But. They revealed the village was destroyed by a woman who has the power to command animals with her mind. And she basically targeted them after they rejected her. And we then cut to the woman in question who has actually kitted herself in a stylized kind of sexy version of the Phantom's costume with hot pants Mm -hmm. instead of tights. She is going by the name, the lady Phantom, which, okay. Like, I don't understand why you can't just call yourself the Phantom. (laughs) Exactly. It's a fairly gender neutral label, but whatever. And she is currently targeting some poachers. She is using her psychic abilities to make these two men hold their guns on each other. And then we learn that her powers were triggered by a rocket full of nuclear waste that crashed down in the jungle. And then Lady Phantom. (laughs) I'm so mad that I have to say that name. She she hears the village drums celebrating the Phantom's return. And then she basically vows to kill the imposter. Kit, meanwhile, swaps his high tech costume out for one that belonged to one of his ancestors because it's like it's implied that he's going to take part in like kind of like a reaffirming officialization ritual or something like that. But the village is attacked by a herd of rhinos and then Kit gets kidnapped by Lady Phantom soldiers. And then from there, we get a prolonged battle between the Phantom and Lady Phantom 
until they end up squaring off in the skull cave. And then they form a psychic bond that forces the truth on Lady Phantom just before the radiation in the area from that rocket that triggered her powers causes them both to pass out. And then it cuts to the next morning when Kit returns to the village carrying Lady Phantom, whose real name is Tana. And then she is cured of both the radiation poisoning and her psychic abilities when Kit flies in modern medicine. Garan, Kit, and Professor Archer fly home to Metropia while Kit knows that the Phantom is needed wherever there's evil to fight. And that just happens to be Metropia right now. And then we get a, it, it's literally, it's just the word end with a question mark. But there shouldn't be a question mark because this is the final issue of the series. And the whole issue feels so gross. Like both the story and Ditko's art really lean into the savage stereotype of the Bengar people, which is very uncomfortable. Yeah. Like Ditko's art also feels kind of racist, like with how he drew black people. Like I was honestly kind of shocked. Like they, they felt like they had kind of exaggerated pictures. And then when he's leaning more into like the savage stereotypes where they're running around with spears and shit. And I'm like, this is supposed to be a cyberpunk future. Why do they not have at least some technology, but no, you're drawing this village and the people within it. Like they are from the late 19th century. Yeah. And then it's also they're disappointing. There's a whole thing with like how the phantom like tricks them with like some of his up-to-date technology. And they're like, Oh, he's a demon. I'm like, motherfucker. Like again, cyberpunk future. How is this shit not known? Like, yeah, I, it's just, it's so uncomfortable. And then the lady phantom, like, I, I really don't like how they immediately just are like, Oh, well, you know, she loses her powers and she doesn't want them back after she's been cured with modern medicine. I'm like, man, I don't know. Like, couldn't you keep her as an ally? What if, what if like you, you sit there and accept her as an ally who will help protect the area, like using her powers because they seem pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So anyway, that's it. The, like the series ends at this point. It's not really a thing. We never had anything else come about from it. And then the series ended the next year and it was, relegated to reruns and got like some limited home video releases on VHS and DVD. A few episodes were collected on DVD and Australia saw the entire first season come out in that format, but the complete series hasn't been officially collected for home media. You can, however, stream it on Pluto TV and the King feature syndicate official YouTube channel. We both, I think watched it on Pluto TV, Yeah, but the video quality is, is middling at best. Like it's, it's not great. And like the audio is a little weird, but like, you know, you can still watch it. It's, it's not bad. And that said, the cartoon has definitely gotten a lot of praise and attention since it aired, but there hasn't been any real attempt to revisit like the setting or the character since this went off the air. So I have some questions for you now. (laughs) Let's, Let's go. All right. How do you feel the cartoon of Phantom 2040 compares to defenders of the earth? Well, fuck, it was way better than Defenders <laughs> of the Earth. Like, it's almost cruel to compare them both. <laughs> Defenders was like, it was pretty boring to watch, in my opinion, and yeah. super forgettable. But this actually had a decent plot line, some interesting characters and villains. Like you said, they actually like built up the characters instead of yeah. just like having them kind of float in and out. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty well written for what it was. Yeah. It had a lot more meat to it than Defenders felt like it had for sure. Oh yeah. hundred yeah. percent. Like, so I watched 
the first couple of episodes with Sarah and she was like, mm, okay. But she made a comment about how the show must've been like incredible when it launched, because you can tell that the people who were making it were like very into the project. Yeah. But you know, it's definitely a slow burn and it's a very thoughtful series with like a very strong meta plot. I, I feel like if I was a kid coming in on like a middle episode of this, I would be a little bit lost because it wasn't yes. trying to dumb it down and make it as snackable of an experience as a lot of Saturday morning cartoons were, where it was like, you can just jump in and you're immediately going to be able to follow everything that's going on. Agreed. Like I said, I watched about 10 or 12 episodes while I was preparing for this, and I really found myself enjoying it. But like, I will also note that the action scenes are probably like the weakest part of the show. They're, they're very stiff. Like I'm kind of surprised that it actually got two seasons because I think that this show is really good, but I don't think the average tween would have really been into it because of how nuanced and slow paced it is. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and along the same topic, like both of these properties were set in near future in quotes environments, but they were very different defenders of the earth. Like they kind of had this idealized near future setting while Phantom 2040 was obviously more cyberpunk and dystopian. But like, which one do you think worked better for the narrative? I always think that dystopian future is way more interesting mm-hmm. and more plausible based on humanity's history. So I'm always yeah. way more keen to see how they paint the dystopian future, mm-hmm. especially with some of the parts being set in like our modern times. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, there was a point where he was like, oh, in 2024 and then 16 years later. And I was like, holy shit, like that's now. Yeah. I think Star Trek at one point was talking about how 2024 is like a pretty bad year for humanity. So I don't know, man. I don't know, man. Yeah. If they had said 2020, that would have been really fucking spot on. Man, right. Yeah. I mean, so I'm, I'm kind of on the same wavelength as you. I think the setting was more window dressing than anything else in defenders of the earth, but here it, it's like, it's actively part of the plot, almost like it's to the point of it being its own character. Yeah. I agree with that. Okay. So (laughs) I mean, in in the least revealing question of this episode, how do you feel about the comic in comparison to the cartoon? Like the comic was not great. Yep. Like I, I, legit, I like you would preface that to me. You messaged me and you were like, listen, warning. I was like, oh, no, here we go. We almost never do that. We usually kind of like ahead of these yeah. episodes, we'll like, you know, we'll talk about this stuff a little bit. But like, we're just like, OK, so like these are the issues you want to cover, things like that. And we don't yeah. usually sit there and talk about what our takes on these are until the episode. No, we itself. save it. We save it for the show usually. Yeah. So I know it's going to be bad when Mike's like. Listen, <laughs> I, I think I said it's like charitably not great. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what you said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I legit was getting tired reading it and it didn't capture my attention like the show did. That last issue was like, oh, oh. oh it was real bad. Like it's I forgot rough. how like I think my brain blocked how bad it was until you started retalking about it and I was like, "Oh no. It was it was bad." The show did a really nice job of telling the story where I feel like they tried to like stuff the backstory down the reader's throat at the very beginning of the comics. Yeah. Before being able to like get into anything substantially narrative. It was just 
the show at least felt like it had some forward momentum where the comic didn't always feel that way. It's interesting you mentioned that because one of the sources that I used for this was the Encyclopedia of American Animated Television Shows by David Perlmutter. So they provide like kind of commentary on these shows after they provide the entry explaining, yeah. you know, when it aired, what channels it aired on, et cetera, et cetera. And he gives kind of like a vaguely positive description of the show. And one of the things that he says is the animated series featured a backstory as elaborate as that of the comic strip, focusing on the intrigue in a city state created by the political decline of the world due to a shortage of natural resources and onto which the lead character and various villains were overlaid. Yeah. 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 I mean, the comic feels very clunky. Like they are fire hosing exposition at the readers on page one of the first issue. Yeah. And we miss out on like so much crucial character development and world building that were really well handled in the cartoon. And I, I get that this was a standard size comic that had the unenviable task of adapting an extra long cartoon, but it's kind of strange that they just didn't do a double sized premiere issue to try to like cash in on that collector's market. That was like still pretty big at the time. Like, right. well, I mean, related to this, like, what did you think of Steve Ditko's art? Like, it was fine. I liked how the fandom was drawn, but the style mm-hmm. felt very much like he was drawing caricatures. Yeah. I don't know. Nobody really looked like attractive to me. Like it wasn't no. that kind of comic. Everybody kind of was funny looking. I, I don't know how to explain it. Like it was almost like Uncanny Valley, but yeah. comic books, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, but like other I... than that, like it was fine. Like, I don't know. It wasn't super memorable. Yeah. No, yeah. it's like. It It's weird. Like, I'm of two minds about it. Like, because on one hand, Ditko, I think, was actually a very talented artist. And his art in this book feels very classic. Like, yeah. this is the type of art that you would expect to see in, like, a book from, like, the 60s and 70s. It's super easy to parse for young readers. But it doesn't really reflect any of the originality that was on display with the cartoon. The characters are still rocking the same overall designs that they had on the show. But we don't we don't get any of that exaggerated, stretched out you know, design or features that Chung was known for. Instead, we get a lot of static shots that never feel very exciting. Like there's no cinematic angles or anything like that. And like, for the most part, this book's art is perfectly serviceable, but there's nothing bold or edgy like we got in the cartoon. Yeah. And that said, there are definitely moments where Ditko's art just doesn't look great. Like we get shots where characters are talking and their heads aren't angled right. Like, like, oh, yeah, there, that's fair. I did see some of that. Too. There yeah. there was one where like one of the characters is talking over his shoulder, but like the head is spun to the point where I'm like, you don't have any neck bones if that's actually how you're <laughs> able to naturally move. And on top of that, like there are some close ups on characters faces that look weird and unhinged, but like not in a way that's meaningful. Like it just looks bad. Yeah. And, And like I said earlier, it's so weird because the covers are all very intense and very stylized and we don't get any art approaching that with the interiors. Like, and then each of these issues also came with like a phantom poster that I think Steve Ditko would draw. And those were, those were actually kind of cool. Like I actually liked all the ones that I remember seeing. Like I was like, Oh, these are actually like, fairly charming like if i had a poster like this hanging on my wall like a big one i'm like it looks really clean and polished i like it like you know yeah the posters were cool yeah but like so would you like to see this property come back sure 
like, I think it'd be fun to bring it back. They would have to make it less about being a white savior and more about environmentalism, though. Right. They'd have to, they, they would have to go in that direction. Like, mm-hmm. he would fully have to move out of Africa to make it work in this day and age, I think. Yeah. And, like, Sarah was getting mad because they kept talking about just a vague, the jungle I freaking hate that. That is saying like nebulously like Africa, which is, by the way, a whole ass continent with all kinds of different things happening in it. Yeah. I And like, I, you know, I did appreciate that. I think I like I don't know for certain, but in the cartoon, it sounded like Africa, the continent had actually become an entire nation on its own because they talk about like the African unification accords or something. And I'm like, fine. Yeah. OK, whatever. Like, yeah. But like <laughs> it's yeah. And, and the other thing is like. I think the Phantom would actually work really well if you brought him back or her back as a person of color, because I refuse to believe that, like, for several centuries, it's only been a white person, like, you know, in this family. Like, I literally was thinking (laughs) about I'm like, where are you going to procure your significant other? Yeah, I I mean, there's several ways that you could handle this gracefully where it's like, yeah. Instead of making it like a direct descendant where it's like, oh, well, it's actually like a chosen champion of this village and like and it gets handed down, you know, right. like, you know, with with each one. And thus you can have like all sorts of different people. I'm like, that's yeah. fine. Yeah. I don't know. Whatever. Yeah. No, I yeah. Agree. <laughs> I I think I would like to see this come back too, but I'm also in that very niche Venn diagram where I'm down for Pulp Adventure and Cyberpunk at the same time. But you know, and I also I am one of those people who loves a really good slow burn story. So, mm. yeah. Do you have any final thoughts on this topic before we move on to brain wrinkles? Now I well, two things. Thing number one, it was a fun cartoon. I liked yeah. it better than I thought I would based on the comic since I yeah. read the comic first. The cartoon was overall pretty good for what it was. Mm-hmm. Thing number two, I think that there needs to be another Phantom movie. With Billy Zane passing down his phantomness to his son. And I, I think that'd that. be cool as shit. Billy Zane, I would absolutely think love about that. it. Think about I it. He, I guess because like it was set in like the, the pulp era, so it'd be like his grandson or great grandson now. But yeah, that'd be good. I'd like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll talk about this more in a minute, but there's apparently a movie that they've been trying to get off the ground for a while. Oh. I think since like 2014. Okay. Yeah. I'm legit sad that this didn't get a better comics adaptation. It's it's kind of the opposite of Defenders of the Earth, where in that case, we had a so-so cartoon, but a pretty fun comic. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and then in this case, we had a, a banger cartoon and a comic that was at best passable. Like, yeah. At best. Like, yeah. That's being that's being very charitable. Very charitable. You're you're feeling very generous today. Yeah. That said, it's it's hard not to compare this property to another future spin on a classic character. And it felt like Phantom 2040 walked so that Batman Beyond could run later in the nineties. Yeah, I can see that. Okay. Yeah. Like I actually, I was comparing it to Batman Beyond. I'm like, honestly, like Batman Beyond has a lot of similarities to this and that it's like, it's got a really strong meta plot overall. The city of Gotham in the far future, it's its own character, you know, based on how strongly it's depicted. You know, and that said, like the action sequences are leagues beyond what we got in Phantom 2040, which were like kind of stiff and static and like whatever. Yeah. But yeah, it just it feels like this is the precursor to what we eventually got. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you feel about moving on to brain wrinkles? Let's go wrinkle some brains. All right. 
We are now at Brain Wrinkles, which is the part of the show where we talk about one thing that is comics or comics adjacent that has just been stuck in our head for the last couple of days. So what is rattling around the old noggin? Not usually much of anything. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm not kidding. Right now, it is that merchandising. I've Mm. just been thinking about how different merchandise and advertising is from when we were kids mm-hmm. to now because there's still there's still things being made like they're still making products for new shows that come out you know look right. at all the stuff you know with baby yoda slash grogu that came out you know with oh, the yeah. show coming out so there's always things like that but i just feel like back in the day when you and i were kids it was so much different because the content felt like it was there to merchandise. Like that's what oh, yeah. it felt like it was. And it truly was, you know, we've, we've talked about that in our Saturday morning cartoons. Like it was made to make things that people could consume. And I feel like shows have moved away from that, mm-hmm. but they haven't moved away from the ruthless merchandising that they still do with these products. I mean, you can, you can find baby Yoda's face on anything. Right. You know? Yeah, there's a whole book talking about how those of us that were raised in like the 80s, basically our childhood was like crafted by toy manufacturers. And I need to read it. I can't remember the title of it right now, but it looks really cool. It's I mean, that feels very genuine. I mean, thinking about all of just like the random stuff that we had. I mean, like I had a Little Mermaid, a Little Mermaid, everything like I had a beach towel and plates and, you know, a whole like, you know, that dish set and silverware and cups and, you know, like just toothbrushes. I mean, it's just everything. And it to this day, to this day, you know. Yeah. Marketing to kids back then was just ruthless. Like it was wild. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like they've taken the pressure off a little bit, but things <laughs> a little things bit, are but... still a little bit, but it's not quite as heavy, but it's still definitely pretty prevalent. It just feels a little different. Yeah. So that's what I've been thinking about. Right. What about you? Yeah, so I've obviously been immersed in a lot of Platinum Age content for the past week while I have researched both this and, and the last episode that we covered. And a lot of the characters from this era have some extremely uncomfortable at best elements associated with them, particularly like tied to racial stuff. Like we already talked about how the Phantom has some different colonialism, white savior vibes. Seriously, it's always white people who don the Phantom's costume. And like Mm -hmm. it, it just, it's kind of, you know, (laughs) it's not great. But if you look at Mandrake, like his sidekick Lothar's early depictions were just, they were straight up racist. Like there's, there's no way around it. Or if you look at, Flash Gordon, his enemy Ming the Merciless's features are unmistakably drawn to resemble East Asian stereotypes. Yeah. And I know there are planned reboots and adaptations in the works for some of these characters. Like I mentioned the Phantom movie just a couple minutes ago that they've been trying to get going for about a decade. Apparently Taika Waititi is working on a Flash Gordon movie. Huh. But I'm I'm wondering how you can ethically bring these characters back in a way that can deal with these problematic themes or like, do you just try to omit them? And then if you do that, is it still possible to be faithful to the character or do you alienate a huge swath of people who like everything about that original version of the character, even the problematic parts? I don't know. That is so hard because I feel like any way you swing it, like you're going to make somebody unhappy. Yeah. And I, I mean, I personally think that these characters are, representative of like the eras they created in. They are moments frozen in amber. 
that, you know, where like white people in media, like were not great about minority representation during this era. What? I know. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, like Ming the Merciless was created during what was it? The yellow panic. I think it was called Yeah. the era when they were basically really racistly depicting all people of Asian descent. I don't know. Like, I, I feel like you should come down on the right side of history. And, and if you're going to bring these characters back, you should update them in a meaningful way that, that basically establishes a new canon. And, you know, and basically is like, yeah, this is the new version of the story. They're fictional characters. Like it, it shouldn't right. be that hard, but then you always get these people who are so diehard and so mad, like the outrage when they had one of Dr. Who's incarnations be a woman. <laughs> yep. Or like, I know people freaked out about when they made the Daredevil movie back in like 2004 or whenever. And Michael Clark Duncan was playing the Kingpin and people were mad about that. Like, whatever. You know, just. I don't have patience. If, you, if that's the hill that you want to die on, like, congratulations. I guess you just suck as a person. Like. Yeah, that's how I feel about it, too. But but anyway, the overall question I have is like, I don't have a problem with these characters coming back, but I am curious to see how their problematic elements are addressed or, right. or, or do you just basically not acknowledge them and, and like just keep going, which I mean, that's, that's an option you can take too. I guess it's not a great one. Yeah. Mm. Uh. Yeah. So anyway, that is our show for today. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, we will be back next week with another dollar bin discovery. And then after that, we will have another deep dive. No idea what that's going to be because we are recording these out of order and in advance. So yeah. That's true. <laughs> anyway, until then, we will see you in the stacks. Thanks for listening to Tencent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier and Mike Thompson, written by Mike Thompson and edited by Jessica Frazier. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who you can find at lookmomdraws.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to tencenttakes.com or shoot an email to tencenttakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or now. The official podcast account is Tencent Takes, all one word. Jessica is Jessica Witha, and Jessica spelled with a K. And Mike is Van Sau, V-A-N-S-A-U. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, Blue Sky, and Hive. A full list of our socials will be listed in the show notes. You can also send us mail now. We are at P.O. Box 940 in Pengrove, California, 94951. And Pengrove is spelled P-E-N-N-G-R-O-V-E. Send us stuff. <laughs> if you'd like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop. 